So it's really good to be before all of you again today. Really excited. We're going to have some fun today. You're probably going to see me blush a lot today (laughs) during this sermon. So please bear with me in our discussion today. Um, You know, uh, things are warming up. It's going to be a really warm day today. The last time I spoke, um, we were just getting into spring. But things are really starting to warm up in terms of the temperature. Things are really starting to warm up in a lot of people's relationships. You know, summertime is a, is a time where when the weather gets warm, where people are out more and just the activities are just going on and it's wonderful. Um, Alex, um, where is my boy? There he is. Um, you know, sometimes, and if you're a parent, you understand this, sometimes our, our, our children become our teachers. And uh, as scary as that may sound sometimes, I'm going to embarrass Alex a little bit. He has a, a lady friend, and <clears throat> he's a handsome boy, but he's got a lady friend. And um, at, the, at the breakfast table this morning, um, he asked me a question. I did, obviously didn't prepare this in my sermon, but, you know, I thought it was a good thing to kind of bring up. He says to me, um, Dad, um, what's love? Wow. I thought, I, I had to pause for a moment because I thought, what a loaded question. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Well, it's so loaded. And I said, well, son, to be honest with you, right, Alex? I was like, well, it depends on the context. What are we talking about? That love is so complex that the Greeks had seven, eight, nine different words for love. It's so complex. And I said, so it really depends on what you're talking about, because if I'm talking about my love for your mom, I said, well, Alex, um, I have agape love for your mother, this godly, unconditional love. I have a phileo love for your mom. I have a storge love for your mom. I have this eros love. Look all those words up in the Greek, by the way. Um, I have all of these different romantic and friendship and this erotic love. I have all these different loves for mom. And so love is complex, and love is deep, and it's passionate. And that's kind of this season. We're actually, if you've been married for a while, you probably forgot this, but um, this is like wedding season, right? And so May is the third most popular month to get married. June is number one, September being number two. So we're in this season of just love and romance and people getting married and expressing their love through the covenant of their marital vows, and it's, it's just beautiful. So today is going to be really, really fun. And why is it going to be fun? Because today we're going to be starting a four-part sermon series on the book of the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. Hmm. Now... Go ahead and get your Bibles out. Now, if you have a Bible, just so that we're all in the same place, um, grab one of the Pew Bibles today, unless your Bible that you have personally is in the NIV. So if if your personal Bible is the NIV, you're fine. But why don't you grab one of the Pew Bibles today, and we're going to be on page 668 in our Pew Bibles today, just so we're all reading from the same translation of the Bible today, uh, so we're all reading the same text. Now... Personally, I'm not saying it's never been done, but personally, I have never heard a sermon myself from the Song of Solomon. Never. And I'm not saying it hasn't been done, and I even did a YouTube, Google search for some sermons, and there were very few sermons online of the Song of Solomon, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> so two thi- one of two things is going to happen today. Either this is going to go extremely well, or I'm going to get run up out of here today and ask not to come back. Okay, So I hope that it's the first and not the last. So if you don't know, again, Song of Solomon is is one of the last books of poetry uh, in your Bible. So you got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. I want to start today by asking you guys really quickly about technology. And you can shout out this if you'd like. So technology is so prevalent. How many of us have a lot of technology in their life? 
Anyone? Okay. And anyone just have an average amount, you think? And who hates it? Who just avoids technology at all costs? Okay. I knew there was a few of us in here. That's usually the smaller number today. But we have so much technology. I mean, we have a high-speed internet. We got whole house DVRs recorded in one room, wash it in another. We got Blu-ray players. You got phones now that are like small computers. They got Siri or Cortana. And you got Alexa, and Alexa does everything. She turns on your lights. She turns your washing machine on. She, Alexa does everything. She can read you stories if you want her to read you a story. She even tells good knock-knock jokes. Ask her to tell you a knock-knock joke. See what happens. But, you know, we have all of this equipment. We have all of this technology. And to be honest with you, at, the, at this rate, um, information or accessibility to information seems like it doubles every two weeks. I mean, we just have more and more access to information, to technology. And arguably, we are arguably, one of the most educated, sophisticated, and rational societies in human history. Now, I said arguably. Some of y'all shaking your heads. And that's why I said arguably. Okay? And so we enjoy, as a people, all the wonderful advancements of Western civilization. And literally, we have at our fingertips right now, if you'll hold up your Bibles, everyone hold up your Bibles. You have holding in your hand a 3,000-year-old, amongst other things, collection of poems in your hands right this moment. And as we hold this 3,000-year-old book of poems in our hands, the, the question that we ask is, when can I get into this? When can I, some of you are asking this, I just can't wait to get into this book and find out about a good relationship because these poems are really about a good relationship. And so you see, we're so sophisticated, we're so advanced, but yet we find ourselves craving for more knowledge about the simplest topic, relationships good relationships, and we're dying to know more, aren't we? I mean, who in this room isn't dying to know more about how to have a good relationship? There is a multi-billion dollar industry in self-help books that are dedicated just to relationships. Don't believe me? Go to Barnes and Nobles. There is an entire section of that store dedicated to nothing but relationships. Check it out. So why? Why can't we wait to get our hands on this 3,000-year-old book of love poems about attraction and marriage? Why? Well, here's the reason why. Because the fundamental issues of relationships and marriages have not changed in 3,000 years. That hasn't changed. We've become more sophisticated about it, and our means in which we act upon these relationships and pursue has changed slightly with technology, but the truth of the matter is the way we really do it at its core is really, really the same. So I don't really think that we're as advanced as we'd like to think that we are. And this is why today I'm excited to get started on this series, because I think this is important. And you know why it's important? Because you and I both know that the world doesn't have the answers. And how do we know this? Because so many of us have been trying it the way the world has been prescribing to us, and it just hasn't worked. We found ourselves in more broken relationships and more failed partnerships with not just the opposite sex, but everyone, because we're doing it the way the world has prescribed. We're so advanced, but these principles around attraction, relationship, marriage, and even sex, the way the world sees it, is all wrong. And so we want to talk about this today. And so deep down inside, we know that the world's way is wrong and that the way God prescribes it is really the right way. You know, I was reading some interesting statistics. If you actually Google, you go to use Google Scholar. Many of you don't know that you can actually Google 
peer-reviewed journals and, and, and research on Google. It's called Google Scholar. I was reading through some studies and some statistics, and uh, some of the latest data shows that Christians, and I use the word Christian very loosely, but Christian divorce is on par with non-Christians around the United States and around the world. Can you believe that? We're supposed to be the people that have the answers. We're supposed to be the people that have the word of God in our hands, and our divorce rate amongst Christians, and again, I use that lightly and in quotes, is, is just as high as among non-Christians. Now, when you really dig into the data, you will see the data is even broken down further by those Christians who truly follow their faith. I'm happy to say that those believers who truly follow their faith, our divorce rate is a lot lower. There's just something about that that I found really, really interesting. And so I want to illustrate to this to you, and some of you may remember this. I want to illustrate it to you in a song. It was a song that was written almost 20 years ago, and some of you may remember it. It was a, it was a song written by uh, Sheryl Crow and Kid Rock. I wasn't always saved. <laughs> um, and it was a song called Picture. Some of you remember this song. Um, this song is kind of a haunting song. And it's certainly not as beautiful as the Song of Solomon. But I think the structure of the song picture is actually very similar to the Song of Solomon. Because in the Song of Solomon, what we see is we see a man and a woman singing about their love and their relationship. And in this song that I'm going to recite these words for you, just to give you this illustration, you'll see it's the same structure. So let me read to you the lyrics, the first couple um, passages of this song. <clears throat> so um, this is uh, the guy or Kid Rock who, who sings in this part of the song, and, and he sings this. Living my life in a slow hell, different girl every night at the hotel. I ain't seen the sun shine in three dang days. I've been filling up on whiskey and cocaine. Wish I had a good girl to miss me. I'm going to pause right there. Do you hear the longing? Do you hear Kid Rock knowing that this isn't working? And he's crying out in recognition that the world's way isn't right. Listen to what he says next. He says, Lord, I wonder if I'll ever change my ways. I put your picture away sat down and cried that day. I can't look at you while I'm laying next to her. Now listen to what the female voice says. Cheryl Crow sings this. I called you last night in the hotel. Everyone knows, but they won't tell. But their half-hearted smiles tells me something ain't right. I've been waiting on you for a long time. I've been fueling up on headaches and cheap wine. I ain't heard from you in three dang nights. I put your picture away, wondering where you've been. I can't look at you while I'm lying next to him. This is a haunting song. And for some of us, especially when you put this song to music, and for some of us, it's, just, it's even more haunting because we've lived it. Many of us in this room have experienced the pain and the heartache that's sung out in this song. And maybe you're lucky enough that that hasn't been you. But maybe you know a loved one who has experienced this. Maybe a, a son or a daughter. Maybe even a grandchild. And you just wish that you could do something for them and knowing that there is just nothing that you could do but pray. Maybe, maybe neither one of those two situations apply to you. Maybe you've never experienced that in your life. And if you haven't, praise God and good for you. But maybe you're a husband right now who secretly slips under the covers and wishes that your wife would attack you like you are the sexiest man alive. 
Or maybe you're a woman sitting uh, uh, on the couch watching a movie with your husband, eating popcorn, and just wondering why he doesn't chase me playfully around the bedroom like he used to. Thinking in your heart, maybe it's because I'm not as attractive as the blonde in the movie. But it's haunting. And we think about these things and we, we wonder why we need so much help. But this is something that's real. This is something that, that, that we live with and this is something that we can just relate to. Now here it is. This is why we're here today. And this is what we want to talk about. We want to examine today in our time together this idea of attraction. And I want to talk to you today about the art of attraction. That's our topic today from the Song of Solomon. Now, if any of you guys know me really well, and many of you do, you know that I am very, very practical with my faith that I don't take away or add from the scripture, that I love to apply the word of God as it is unadulterated practically in my life and every single word of it. So let me make sure that I make this very, very clear to all of you. I love the word of God. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. And I think that the reason we don't see a lot of preaching from the Song of Solomon is because what's written in this book, to be honest with you, it really scares us. It really reflects some things that maybe, just maybe, we're not so comfortable with. And so the world's ideas of attraction, of love, of relationships, we know that they're wrong. They're not working. And so today, I pray that as we examine this 3,000-year-old poem about love and romance and sex, I'm praying today that these scriptures will help us today to examine and deal with our own insecurities. Can we pray for a minute before we get started? Let's pray. Father, I thank you today um, for the truth of your word. I thank you that you've placed things in your word that may not seem like they fit, God, and we may not really understand them, but all of your word is true, and all of your word is good. So I pray that people's hearts today be open to examining, Lord, themselves against your word. For what better way to measure ourselves than against the truth of your scripture? So I pray that hearts be opened and people be moved today to receive what you have for them today. So I thank you and the people of God say, amen. So I spent the last few weeks really studying and examining and digging into the Song of Solomon. And you know what I found? I was really, really surprised. I found that there were some amazing connections in this book that connected directly to our culture today. It was so powerful, the revelation of this scripture. I said, Why don't we hear more about it? Now, before we go into this, I want to make sure that you guys understand where I'm coming from. I believe that the Bible is God-inspired. I believe that it is God-breathed, and I believe that everything in it is profitable for correction and instruction. Every single word to include the Song of Solomon. Every single word. Even this collection of poems and romance and sex. And that is why I'm excited to deliver this four-part series to you today. So again, today we're going to have a little fun. I'm probably going to embarrass myself a lot. That's okay. But we're going to talk about, and if you open your Bibles again, the Song of Songs. If you're in your pew Bibles, you're in page, uh, on page 668 of your pew Bibles. And I want to start today with a little bit of background. And so I want to start by reading verse 1. And verse 1 is a short verse, and it's very simple. Verse 1 says, if you look at your Bibles, Lord, thank you for the reading and revelation of your word. Amen. It says, Solomon's Song of Song. Now, again, I want to give you a little background because if I don't give you this background, I think you're going to be lost as we kind of go through this uh, lesson today. 
But the, the, the word song of song is really a Jewish idiom. And, and what that basically is, is this is a way that the Jewish people emphasize something that's important. And to tell you that something is the best, holy of holies, king of kings, song of songs. It is illustrating by those short words there that this is Solomon's greatest song. Snapple fun fact, Solomon wrote over a thousand songs. Solomon actually wrote a thousand and five songs that we know recorded. So he wrote a lot, but this song, the scripture says, is the song of songs. It is his best song that he ever wrote. It is his, what we would call his magnum opus, which is a really fancy word of saying it's his best work. This song is actually how we would understand it. It's like his greatest hit CD. So we understand it that way a little better. Hmm. The second thing of note today is that the song, these poems, are not exactly in chronological order. I love the ebbs and flows of this book. It flows very symphonically. But if you try to read the Song of Solomon linearly or chronologically, you'll be completely lost. You won't understand it because it's just these romantic poems of this man and this woman expressing their love and their intimacy together, and it's beautiful. Third, that the collection of poems is, as I mentioned, is a husband and wife singing to each other. For those of you who like country music, it's like Faith Hill and Tim McGraw, right? They got a lot of love songs that they wrote together, and there's, there, a lot of them are very beautiful. I don't listen to a lot of country personally, so it would be like a J-Lo and Mark Anthony for me, okay? <laughs> but you get the picture. But it's like them singing, whichever couple fits you better. It's like them singing with background singers and the vocalists and, and, and the, 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 as we look at the Bible, you'll see that there's even titles of who's actually speaking. If you look right after verse 1, you will see it will tell you she. So you know that it's the woman speaking. Now the woman in this story, she's called the beloved. And in this story, she's the female voice. She's Solomon's wife or his betrothed. In this story, it's equivalent to Faith Hill being Tim McGraw's girl, right? And so there's something that you need to know. Now, pay attention if you're dating or if you want to be dating. Guys, I'm just letting you know ahead of time. I'm going to pick on y'all a little bit, okay? But if you're dating or you want to be dating, here's an important note. Fellas, women are never alone, okay? Women always got their girls with them. They always care come, come with their girlfriends, right? And so keep that in mind. They are never alone. And in this scripture, in biblical times, the women were never alone either. The women had their girls always with them. And in this scripture, we see the same thing. There's actually another voice in the scripture, female voices that you hear in the scripture. They're called the daughters of Jerusalem. And so you'll hear them from time to time, just like a woman's friends today throw in lines here and there. You'll hear that these daughters of Jerusalem in this scripture, in these poems and songs, they're dropping in lines here in the song. So it's important to know. Now, here's a little advice for you fellows today, okay, my single guys. If you're dating or you're going to be dating, you're going to need to get the approval of your ladies, girlfriends, if you're going to be successful. Ladies, am, am I, what am I talking about? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You ladies know the first person you're going to talk to about this guy is your girlfriend, okay? And not much has changed since biblical times because in the scripture we see that too. You see her girlfriends in this story adding their two cents into these poems. And so, guys, make sure that when you're going on a date, you invite the girlfriends, too, from time to time so that they can be a part and they can get to know you a little better, okay? I'm, done, I'm trying to help you guys out today, okay? I told you we'll have a little fun today. But the Song of Solomon is, is, is beautiful, and we have these lovers that are singing this poetry. And again, I'm almost done this background. I, just, I think this is important. But, but they're really about two people expressing their feelings of their love and their sexual desire and there's moments of 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 just sensualness in the scripture and it's not crass like it it's 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 not anything 
expletive. It's beautiful. It's almost like when Tim McGraw and and Faith Hill write their songs. It's beautiful and it's poetic. Um, And and it it reminds me of some of their songs. Again, I know a few of their songs, but, you know, uh, there's one song, um, what's it called? Uh, It's Your Love, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, or um, just to say, or just to hear you say you love me. I mean, this is, this is the same type of poetry and music that we're seeing in the Song of Solomon. And so it's important to get that picture that this poetry has a purpose in God's plan. Okay, so let's get to it. Now that the background is over, let's, let's have a little fun here. All right, so let's look at verse 2 really quickly. Now here's where it's really going to start to heat up. So in verse 2, the woman starts this book of poetry the woman starts and she says and and I'll read it with you it says let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than fine wine or delightful than wine all right so let me take a moment to comment on the first part of this scripture so when she says let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's like, mwah, mwah. And, and you don't even really get the full effect of, of this scripture because in the Hebrew, when you read this scripture in the Hebrew, not that I don't read Hebrew, I was just reading the translation of the words, but the, the English word just doesn't capture it. When you read this in the Hebrew, there's an onomatopoeia going on. Some of y'all are like, what is that? I just like saying that word. Um, but, but what I'm saying is that there is a Hebrew phrase in this scripture that sounds like smacking. The word it just sounds like smacking or making the noise of kisses. Some of you are blushing here with me today. It's okay. But, but in this, what it's talking about is this passionate, passionate kiss that's happening. Is it getting a little hot in here? Okay. All right. I got to shake this off. So let me talk to the guys for a second. I told you guys I was going to pick on you for a little bit today. Let me pick on you guys for a minute. Um, Women, y'all can tune me out. Rosa, this should be very easy for you. Uh, Tuning me out. It's okay. Um, Wouldn't it be great? I love you, sweetie. You know that. Wouldn't it be great if we could get our wives to say those words to us? If we could get our wives in six different translations of the Bible to tell us, kiss me with the smacking, passionate kisses of your mouth. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> Whoa, she says. But, but this, let's look at the second part of the verse. The woman says, his love is better than fine wine. Now, this woman is saying that, hey, I'm attracted to Solomon. I'm deeply and passionately intact in, um, um, in love with him. I'm intoxicated. That's why she uses the reference with wine. She's saying, I'm completely intoxicated by him. And he says, she says, his love is more intoxicating than wine. And so I ask myself, how? Now listen, this is one of those verses that some churches just don't want to admit is in the Bible. Okay, But this woman here is saying that he's more intoxicating than wine, but how would she know? How would she know how intoxicating this man is? So the Hebrew translation for this word actually has more to do with the act of intimacy, with the act of sex. But she examines this, and it's this sense, this Hebrew word has this sense of expectation or longing or this sense of anticipation for making love. Now, I want to make sure that there's something that's really clear here as I'm explaining this text, and we're all coming to a point, that this part of the Song of Solomon is about the betrothed, right? That's another word for us saying the engaged couple. Okay, and this woman is dreaming about and looking forward to her wedding night. She's thinking about being together with her uh, betrothed physically, and her body is crying out for intimacy with her future husband, and it's beautiful. Now listen, I want to make sure this is clear. 
because some people will get this mixed up. This woman in this scripture is not asking for premarital sex. That is not what is happening in this scripture. We'll later learn in the scripture as we examine this text that she says, and I'll I'll read this and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but the woman in this speaking to her girlfriends who are all virgins, she says, let us not awaken love until it is so desired. So she's like, don't, we're not waking up love and its passions yet. And so this woman isn't asking for any intimacy before the consecration of marriage. That's not what she's saying. So what are we learning from this verse? What's the point? What am I getting at here as we're talking about today the art of attraction? The point here is, is that attraction, beloved, is not only scripturally, attraction is not only permissible, but attraction is desirable. You should want to be, whether you're dating or whether you're married, you should want to be attracted to your partner and you should want to be attractive for them. This is the lesson that we're getting here. You should want to be intimate with that individual. That's a natural part of God's design. And, and, and I'm going to say this, and, and this might be, I probably prayed about this for about a couple hours this week. What I'm about to say might be a little shocking. Rosa knows how much I, I uh, toss and turned about this. But I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's true. Sex is good. I want to say it again. Again, you don't hear that, and that's a little uncomfortable and taboo for some of us. But sex is good. Now, can we say that in church? (laughs) Thank you, brother. (laughs) Okay, but let me understand. And when I say that, and I want to understand this scripturally, right, and I'll, I'll even talk to the young people here a little bit. I want to talk about this scripturally. This is God made sex, okay, and intimacy, and, and the Bible says that everything that God made was good. Everything that he made was good. Even the stuff we might not be comfortable with. But everything that God made was good. The scripture tells us that over and over again. So I think I can say without getting kicked out that sex is good. But there's a caveat to this. Now, it's hard for us to say it in church. It's uncomfortable for us to say this in church. And I'm going to explain to you guys why this is so uncomfortable. Here's why. Here's why we have a hard time saying those words in church. Because the world views sex as a God. This is why we're uncomfortable talking about this, saying this in church. The way we've been programmed by seeing all of the stuff in the world is that that act of intimacy has been elevated to a God status. And in the minds of the world, that sex and attraction have become synonymous. And so they, they want to be attractive, the world that is, they want to be attractive for the purpose of that act of intimacy, for that act of sex. The world wants to be attractive. But I think that if you find yourself giving your life to it, constantly thinking about it, that what's going to happen is... And listen, this happened in biblical times too. This is not new. This is not new. How do we know this is not new? Because sex was a form of worship. They actually got together in temples, in these synagogues of these foreign pagan gods, and they engaged in this act of intimacy as a form of worship to their gods. And you know why they did it? Because they wanted to be successful. They wanted money. They wanted power. And they thought that if they, they gave this worship to their false gods in this act of intimacy, that would get them all of those things. And we think the same thing today. The world has the same idea. Don't believe me? See how, uh, see how the world is addicted to attraction and sex. You know, I did a Google search for magazine covers May 2019, and I came up with a list of all kinds of magazines. And I want to I read to you a few headlines that I pulled from these magazines to give you an idea of what I mean when I say that the world has made this act of intimacy a god. I'm going to read this to you guys. I thought this was uh, pretty insightful. Here's a few. 
One magazine cover, the headline said, Best Dressed, How to Win at the Party Season. Or, The 21st Century's Guide to Infidelity. Or another one said, The woman, and there was a picture of this beautiful woman, The woman who is making sex good again. And this other one said, A a sun king and drag queen. These are just a few of the captions, and it went on and on and on. And so it really looks like, and the world has proven to us, just turn on the channels. I can't even watch HBO anymore. So you all know what I'm talking about. Because it's so filled with this stuff and the way they worship and idolize attraction and, this, and sex, it's, it's, it's not the way God designed it. And so as we, as we look at this, the world continues to worship this thing just the way they did back in the day. But I got to tell you, we know as believers that attraction and sex are not God. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world tells us, it is not God. And if, again, you're worshiping attraction and this act of intimacy, if it's all you can think about, if it is number one in your life, I promise you, you will be disappointed. This is how men get trapped in the addiction of pornography, ladies and gentlemen. And I don't think there's a single man in this room, I'd be, I'd be, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to say there would be many who haven't been affected in some way by pornography but this is why. But they are never fulfilled. We are never fulfilled. The only thing that can fill us is God. The only fulfilling relationships that I have ever seen are ones that are based on the way God set that plan, the way God created the relationship, the way God created intimacy. Those are the only relationships that I've ever seen that are fulfilling to both the man and the woman. Now, many churches, guys, we've been trying to, and rightfully so, we have been trying to teach the world that sex and attraction are not God since the very beginning, and rightfully so. But, you know, I think a lot of churches have gotten it wrong. I think the way we've gone about it has been really the wrong approach, in my opinion, where we describe and talk about how bad Uh, uh, intimacy and sex is before and outside of marriage, and that is correct. That is absolutely right. But look what the early church fathers did. There was an early church theologian named Origen who went as far as castrating himself because in his mind, physical attraction was evil. Some of the early church fathers went as far. There was one early church father who said he would rather the human race go extinct than even think about intimacy and sex in the bonds of his marriage. You know, I grew up an old Catholic boy, a little Catholic boy. And I remember being working with the priest and, and the nuns, and they had this um, theology, this kind of um, doctrine, that priests and nuns could not enjoy marriage. They, could, they had to be celibate. And it's so wrong. It's so, that's so unbiblical. But we've created this idea in our heads that these things are bad. And that's not what the Bible says. Guys, the Bible says something so much different than what the world is telling us. That the attraction and the physical intimacy is good. And today, what we do is, honestly, in the church, we even teach our kids this. Watch this. In the church today, I'm not, I'm not beating anyone up here in our church, but in general what we do is we teach our kids, watch this, and we use these words, and hear me here, don't crucify me, let me, let me speak this out. We teach our kids that, that sex is dirty, it's vile, it's evil, it's nasty, it's all of these things, right? And then watch this. You know what we do? Here's the funny thing. This is what I found. This is what I find amazingly um, humorous is that then we tell our children, after telling them that intimacy is bad, ugly, dirty, sex, it's vile, all of that, then we say, make sure you save it for the one you love. Think about that for a moment. It's all of those bad things, but then save it for the one you love. What? Are we kidding? Is this, is what, we're, is this what we're teaching our children? No, that's not. Listen, I get it. I understand that God gave us 
the structure of, of intimacy in the box and in the confines of marriage. That's right, that's beautiful. And so as married couples, we should be showing our kids this great love and intimacy and attraction for one another. We should, in our lives, parents, give our kids this amazing example, biblical example of what love and intimacy is. I'm telling you the truth. Listen, I'm not going to put too much out there. I'm chasing Rosa around the house all the time. And the kids, I'm, I'm embarrassing her, I know. And my kids, they see it, right? It's, it's appropriate, of course. But, and my kids see it, and Alex is always messing with me, and he's always teasing me and, you know, and asking me about why I love mom so much. But Alex gets a picture of us really being physically attracted to each other. And it's the way the Bible prescribed it that we want to be, that physical attraction is good and it's natural and that desire is what God wants us to have. So listen, if you're dating and you have that physical attraction to someone, which you should, I wanna tell you, I know we teach that that's bad in the church, but it's not. God designed you to wanna be physically attracted to that person. God designed you to wanna be intimate with that person who you're courting. Now, this is why I'm not a believer in long engagements. I don't believe in long engagements because I believe that the longer you stretch out your engagement, the more opportunity there is going to be as you're close to them to succumb to that pressure. Paul, the scripture actually describes this, this passion and this intimacy or desire for intimacy as a fire or a burning passion. Paul actually says, I, I, I'd rather you be as I am, Paul says, referring to his singleness and his celibacy. But Paul goes on to tell us that, listen, if you're going to burn with passion, then it's better that you be married. Okay, so this is natural. This is really good in how God designed it. Okay, I believe that intimacy, that sex is a gift from God. And that like any gift, it should be treasured. It should be enjoyed. It should be celebrated. It should be cultivated in a, let me put a, put a pin in this, in committed marriage. For my young people, hear that. It should be enjoyed in committed marriage because it's so good, it's so special, it's so intimate, you do not wanna ruin your future sex life by doing things outside of the bonds of marriage that could lead to unwanted pregnancy, STDs, and all the like because you engaged in an act that was supposed to be met for the covenant of marriage. It's important. Okay. Uh, let's move on. I want to read verse 3 here really quick. We're going to keep going. Uh, we're going to blaze through these next couple of verses. So if attraction is not only permissible, but it's desirable, then by all means, again, we want you to be attracted to your husband and wife, your, your spouse, your fiance. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Again, we're talking about the art of attraction here. And so I'm going to stop right there. This woman is saying that her lover smells good. She loves his perfume. That he took the time to smell good for her. Okay, guys, I told you I was going to pick on y'all today. <laughs> okay, if you want to be attractive to your wife and you want her to say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, if you want her to say that, if you want her to think of your lovemaking as erotic and intoxicating, I need you to brush your teeth. I need you to put some deodorant on. I need you to wear a little bit of cologne. I told you we was going to have. This is really simple. Um, listen, I, okay, I'm going to tell you this. I told you we were going to have a little fun today. I have never, Rosa, you can attest, you, you know this. I have never bought a bottle of cologne a day in my life. You know why? Because it doesn't matter what I like. It doesn't matter. Rosa has bought me colognes that I thought smelled hideous. I told you that. She has bought me cologne that I swear I thought was the hideous smell in the world. 
but I wore it. You know why? Because it doesn't matter what I think about the cologne. It matters what she thinks about the cologne. Amen? I don't even buy my own clothes, ladies and gentlemen. I don't buy my own clothes because I want to dress the way she wants me to dress. Because I want to look good for my bride. And I want her, I want to be what she wants me to be. So even if I think the cologne smells like eau de toilette, I'm still going to wear it. Because I want you to love the way I smell. Listen, I have a grooming ritual at night. I'm not kidding. If you're in our marriage group, you have heard me say this. I have a grooming ritual at night. I look better going to bed. I look like I'm going to the clubs. I'm not kidding. I get really cute before I get in bed with my wife because I'm going to get close to her. And even if we're just going to sleep, I'm going to be close to her and I, I want her to think I smell good and that I'm attractive and that I look good. So I invest. I told you we were going to have a little fun today, but all this is true. And in this scripture, she says, she says that her lover smells good. She loves his perfume. <laughs> She's still. So, guys, please, let's get our hygiene together, okay? Let's, let's work it out. All right. So since we're talking, still talking about being physically attracted to each other, and again, whether it's husband or wife, whether you're um, fiancés or you're just boyfriend and girlfriend, you're still dating. I want to skip down to verse 5 and 6. So let's look at verse 5 and 6 together. And thank you for your grace and your patience today. Watch this, and we're going we're gonna to close with these few thoughts. The, the woman writes, Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Keter, like the tent curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Notice that the woman says that she's dark. I love this. Here's a woman with some swag. Here's a woman with some real confidence. She says, I'm dark yet I am lovely. Now this girl's got some self-esteem. Now why is that in the context of biblical times, why is that so important to hear the woman say? And we don't see this kind of confidence very often, and we certainly don't see this confidence today. She had no self-image issue here, and this is unusual. Why? Because back in those times, someone being dark-skinned was not favorable. Because the women who were wealthy and who had privilege, they didn't work in the fields. So they weren't, they weren't darkened and tanned and wrinkled by the sun. They were, the whiter you were, the more fair your skin was, the more beautiful that you were perceived to be. And here's a woman who says, I'm dark, but I am lovely. Watch out. And why is this so unusual? Because listen... Then, as well as today, insecurities about our self-image are so prevalent. You don't have to raise your hand, but I just want you to think in your head, how many of you today have physical insecurities, have self-image issues? Okay. I'm sure half of you at least rose your hand. I could say I have one of those. I'll be the first to admit. I have some physical insecurities. Okay, this woman says, I love myself. Even though I'm dark, I, yet I am still lovely. And so Solomon's wife, she is not measuring herself against society's standards. She's not measuring herself against the fair-skinned maidens who were in these houses and palaces and didn't have to work in the fields. No, she did not compare her beauty to that. She knows that she's lovely. She knows her worth. And in her world, remember, pretty is pale. So, but she says, tan is okay. Being dark-skinned is just fine. See, remember, the, her girls, these daughters of Jerusalem, they didn't have to work like she did. This woman had to work out in the vineyard. She had to work really hard. 
And she is like telling the models of Jerusalem. We can call it that back in the day. These models of Jerusalem. She's telling them, don't look down on me because I'm dark, because I'm beautiful just as much as you are. And I love that. She didn't buy into the lie of the world. And beloved ladies, I'm asking you not to buy into the lies of the world either. Let me read to you what one woman said. I read this quote or this story, and I thought this was interesting. It was a woman named Linda. And watch what she wrote about her self-image. Linda writes this, that her mom, who is a petite size six, defined her image of beauty. And consequently, she had been dieting since she was 12 years old. Linda goes on to say that uh, there was one day when her daughter was small that the daughter looked at mom, the little one, and she says, Mommy, um, I don't want to grow up to be a mommy. And Linda looked at her daughter and said, well, why is that, sweetheart? And the little girl responded to her mom with this. She says, because, Mommy, if I grow up to be a mommy, then that means I'll have to be on a diet all the time. See, the lie that Linda battled with her whole life was that beauty was defined by a dress size. But see, this woman in this scripture, she didn't believe the lies of the world. She wasn't buying in to all of that. And this is really something profound to think about, that we find these beautiful nuggets of truth and revelation in these wonderful texts. So, ladies... I want you to understand something. That is, as you, and, and, and ladies, it's, it, guys battle with it too, right? And we're almost done here. Ladies, I know that most of you probably have some self-image issue where you're battling with something about your own body image. And so guys, what do we hear from our ladies all the time? I'm fat. Look at all this cellulite on my thighs. I'm gray. You fill in the blank, right? Guys, we hear this all the time. And fellas, what's our response? Baby, I love you just the way you are. Baby, I, I love your cellulite, honey. Honey, I, I love your gray hairs, sweetheart. And, and we are, all, for the most part, guys, um, I hope you're being sincere. For the most part, we're being sincere. And ladies, what do you do? You reject us and tell us that we're lying. <laughs> Am I right? Come on, we, I say, Rosa says it all the time. She's like, honey, I'm so fat. And I'm like, honey, I love your curves. She's like, oh, I'm so ugly. And I'm like, you're the most beautiful thing in the world. But we reject it. Now watch this, ladies. This is important. What you do is when you tell your husband that he's lying, when you tell your husband that that's not true, what you're telling your husband is to believe the lies of the world. What you're telling your husband is to believe that a size two is the right size. What you're telling your husband is to believe that a woman without grays is the most beautiful. That's the message that you're giving your husband's lady. Stop. Your husband is telling you how beautiful you are. Receive it and accept it. He's not trying to buy into the lie. Why should you be? Why should you be buying into this lie and then teaching him to buy into it as well? We don't want what you're selling, ladies. We love you the way you are. Thank goodness that God changes our vision as we get older, right? And so I was, listen, I was, uh, I was really uh, shallow as a young man. <laughs> I was very shallow. And so I, I, the things that I might have been against when I was younger is beautiful to me now because God has a way of changing our vision for the better for our wives and for our husbands. Okay, and Solomon's fiance, just back to the scripture really quickly, his fiance in this scripture, she did not believe in the lies about her skin or about her hair. Solomon didn't buy it into it either. And men, I don't want you to buy into the lies either because there is this just this pervasive thought that we got to be like, mm, like we got to be just like CrossFit extraordinaire, right? Let me tell you something. If I tried to do that thing with the ropes, I might throw my back out. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The thing with the ropes, you got to do like this. I don't even know what that exercise is. If I tried to do that, I'd throw my back out. But guys, I don't want you to believe in the lies either because self-image issues and being attractive 
is really a problem for us too. It's not just the ladies. And we think that, you know, we're not this hunk of hunk of man anymore and that our woman doesn't love us. And Rosa says, baby, I love your belly. And I'm like, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm still trying to get rid of it just for my own health issues. But, you know, guys, we, we, we're never going to be GQ models, most of us. And so we can't believe these lies and the way that Solomon and his beloved didn't believe in those lies either. All right, we're almost done here. Let's look at verse 3 again real quick, really quick. Verse 3 again, um, it said, the woman is saying here in this scripture, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume or, or your smell, right? Or you smell good, You're, I'm physically attracted to you. Um, and so this woman, she, she continues to go on in this and examining this scripture, um, we just see um, throughout it this um, this just this beautiful um, fulfilling of one another. That they were complimenting and fulfilling and confirming and reaffirming their love for one another. And what were they doing? They were fulfilling each other. I'm going to close with this today. Um, most of us try to find our fulfillment in the person that's to our left or to our right. We try to find our fulfillment in a man or a woman. And I'm here to tell you today, if that's what you're trying to do, you are putting an expectation on that man or woman that can never, ever be satisfied. You are placing a burden on that man or woman that will never be filled. And why? because it's not their job to fulfill you. I want you to hear that today. And maybe if you're struggling in your marriage, I want you to think about that. If you're struggling in your relationship, I want you to think about that, that this man or woman that you are with is never, has never, and will never fulfill you because that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to help you as an instrument of God to conform you to the image of Christ. That's it. God wants us through our marriage to be made more holy and not happy. Happy is a byproduct of our holiness. Are y'all hearing me today? And so today, if you're lacking fulfillment, today, if you're not sure of your fulfillment inside, if you're married or dating or whatever your relationship status is, if you're still feeling empty inside, please don't blame him. Please don't blame her. It's because there is a lack of indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And today, I open up the altar for you to come forward and receive him. I want to pray as we close. So if I could have uh, Derek come up for me as we close today. I want to pray. And then I'll, we're going to close today in prayer. <clears throat> We're going to close today in prayer, and then again, uh, we're going to continue to minister up here for a little bit. Again, if you're struggling right now, if you're finding it hard to find fulfillment, you're looking for fulfillment in that woman. Now, again, I'm stopping right here in the scripture because, and we only covered about six scriptures today, because I want you to come back next week. There is so much more that we are going to examine. There is so much more we're going to tackle about relationships. God gave us this great book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, for an amazing purpose. So come back next week as we continue to examine and study this amazing love poetry. But again, if you're struggling with your fulfillment today, and you're trying to find that fulfillment in someone or even something, I invite you up today. Come and receive the only thing that is going to fill your soul. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today that although sometimes, God, these conversations are uncomfortable, that sometimes it takes us out of our comfort zone, that your word is always true, that every single word and punctuation in the scripture was designed to be there by you. 
that it's all wonderful, it's profitable, it's good, God, for instruction and correction. So thank you, Lord, for taking us out of our comfort zone today. Thank you for stretching us today, God, to examine attraction, to examine intimacy, to understand, Lord, today the importance of intimacy in marriage. God, I just pray today that we find our intimacy first with you because we are your bride. And Lord, we just have this great expectation as your bride. We have the great expectation of smelling your amazing perfume, Lord. Of being close to the King. We have a yearning for your intimacy. We have a yearning and an expectation of your love. So we're running after you today, God. And we're asking in the mighty name of Jesus that today you fill us. If there's anyone here, Lord, that is feeling empty, feeling a void, is struggling, God, we ask that you get them out of their seats, get them out of their comfort zone, and bring them forward today. We thank you, Lord. We praise you and we worship you. And the people of God say, amen.